Hey everybody, your disabled daddy Drew here. Really excited to drop in and tell you about um, my new podcast network, Wheels on the Ground Network, which you've heard all the Disability After Dark episodes on. But also, you may have heard a new show that I'm helping to produce called Crip Times, all about artistic expression and disability that I'm so excited to help get off the ground and give a home on my new network. They have their own podcast feed. If you go wherever you get podcasts and just type in Crip Times, you should see their podcast. It's really important because it's about art and disability and it's such a cool show. And so to help their podcast get some traction, I wanted to put episode four of Crip Times on the feed today for you to have a listen to. And then please go and subscribe to them and go and listen to their their show every Monday. They've done, I think, 10 episodes and we're on episode four. And I'm really, really excited for you to hear this first season. So have a listen to episode four right now on the Disability After Dark feed and then follow Crip Times everywhere else. Thanks, friends. Bye. You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Cryptides. Today on Crypt Times, we're joined by Cindy Baker, an interdisciplinary contemporary artist, with your hosts, Yusuf and Christina. So, Cindy, thank you so much for being with us today and being a part of this podcast project that we've been working on. Uh, we are so excited to be able to share you and share your practice with our listeners and our communities. So for folks who might not be familiar with you and your practice, if you could just introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your practice, that would be amazing. Great. Thanks, Christina. Um, I'm a contemporary interdisciplinary and performance artist, um, which uh, basically, the shorthand version of that is that I make things and I do stuff. Um, I, uh, the slightly longer, more involved version is that I have a research-based practice um, that covers a variety of mediums and uh, genres. So I sort of move between the arts, humanities, uh, and social sciences, and I work with all different kinds of materials and techniques, um, from low craft to digital fabrication to performance, um, and sort of think of my ideas as the primary medium or the concepts. So I wouldn't necessarily call myself a conceptual artist because my work is very material, um, but, but focusing very much on the ideas and the concepts. Amazing. And obviously we are in the midst of a global pandemic that is kind of impacting crypt folks, crypt body minds in ways that it isn't impacting uh, non-disabled folks. So I guess the question that I want to ask you is about you and, and how are you today? How is your body mind today? And how are you dealing uh, with this pandemic that we find ourselves in? Yeah, um, 
my mind is a bit wobbly, which has uh, come to be my new normal, at least for now. Um, although wobbly is kind of a state that I wobble in and out of uh, normally. Um, it's summer, which is a little more difficult for me, too, because uh, the heat isn't so great for my brain. Um, so, so today is one of those days that, that um, I'm a bit uh, off kilter. Um, I find, though, and you may agree with me or not, let's see, um, it's an interesting conversation to have that I feel like I have better skills for dealing with this kind of thing, the pandemic, and what it does uh, to our brains and our bodies um, because of the fact that we deal with, um, as disabled people, we deal with these kinds of pressures all the time. I think this is a conversation that I think is being had in a lot of crit communities of the fact that um, not only we had better skills and how to navigate things like isolation, um, but also that these are these additions into society are things that crit folks, disabled folks, have been advocating for for a really long time. Things like remote work, things like captioning and digital meetings, et cetera, so forth. Um, and now they are being seen as essential because also disabled and non-disabled need them. Um, and it's kind of just interesting that this pandemic has shifted the way uh, we view needs in terms of uh, serving folks in isolated spaces, which there have been a lot of disabled folks who have been isolated due to ableism in our society long before this pandemic started. Yeah, absolutely. So you you spoke a little bit about, um, or well, you used the term uh, wobbly uh, to describe like kind of the place that the heat's put your brain in and like also, uh, well, I, I, I guess you, you've spoken a little bit about um, the environment and like what's happening and, and the way in which our bodies are reacting to the pandemic and things like that. And I found that really interesting because I've seen that reflected um, mm -hmm. in your art practice or what I've seen of your art practice. Um, thinking back to the piece that you had at Tangled, I think, yeah. in 2017 or 2018? Yeah, and in 2017, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, I was wondering if you might uh, be able to share a little bit with our uh, listeners um, about what that uh piece was to give a little bit more uh, insight into your uh, creative practice. Sure. So uh, the project that I did at Tangled is called Crashpad. Um, and physically, the, the work that you would see in a gallery um, is a large bed that's shaped like a pill packet. Uh, it's about eight feet across. So if you can imagine a little blister packet with a pill in it, it's kind of that plastic foil with a little bump in the middle that the pill rests in and then a piece of foil that you either peel back or you push the pill up through. Um, and for me, it was kind of a portrait of my favorite pill. Um, and in the middle of it, instead of a pill, there is a mattress that's shaped like a pill. So this bed becomes a prop for me um, to have a relationship with this uh, pill that I sort of, for the purposes of this performance, consider a lover. Um, so it's both the lover and the bed. And I use it um, to be able to interact with it and, and to allow the audience to see me and my relationship to my bed and my relationship to my medication and how I interact 
with it. Um, the piece is also um, an opportunity for me to let the public see an artist who is working hard at resisting the impulse to work hard. Amazing. And um, so Tangled, as a lot of people do know, um, is a disability art gallery. Uh, in your own words, can you describe what you believe disability arts is? Um, sure. To me, disability art is, at its most basic, any art made by uh, people with disabilities uh, of, of all kinds. Um, don't think it necessarily used to be that simple of a definition, but I think um, where we're at with it um, is that anybody who makes art that uh, is disabled can claim themselves as a disability artist, whether or not the subject matters um, they're using uh, actually approach it in a really direct way. Um, and I think that's for me exactly because of the fact that uh, everything that we do as disabled artists um, comes from uh, the lens of, you know, seeing things through our experience as people um, who are affected by disabilities. Right. And what would you say is kind of like the importance of disability arts within the broader art sector within Canada and within the global society? I think uh, disabled people need to see their experiences reflected in the culture, um, and they need to see those experiences um, as as made by people um, who are affected, um, uh, not not represented by uh, people on the outside. And I think all marginalized peoples are going through the same um, sort of revolution right now. Um, you know, we want our representation to be by us and for us. Uh, and we want people to see our experiences uh, and hear them through our own voices. What do you think of um, the notion, or rather, how does your art come up against the notion of a good body being a productive body? Yeah. Um, I think I push against... Um, the notion of productivity very hard in my work. Um, I really think that our uh, neoliberal society expects a certain kind of productivity out of us. Their definition of productivity really has to do uh, with making the uh, capitalist machine run. And so things like um, notions of self-care are not actually about taking care of ourselves, but are about ensuring that we continue to be productive cogs in the machine. Um, so in my work a lot, um, I do push against the idea that we should be cogs in a machine at all. Um, and I want, I ask people to question what productivity is, why there's an imperative to be productive, um, and how that's actually damaging for our bodies. Um, and not just damaging, but in fact, because we sort of not only have this neoliberal imperative to be productive, but that there's a moral imperative as well, that health 
um, has become a moral imperative in our society, and that means that um, to be productive is to be good, to be healthy is to be good, is to be um, is to be a good person and a um, a person who is not just healthy, whatever the you know however you want to define healthy um, and able but also beautiful because beauty uh, is equated to health and to productivity in our society. So everyone who fails at being a perfect um, standard of beauty and a perfectly abled person in all of the ways that that's defined um, is actually seen as lesser than, less productive, uh, less valued in our society. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, that also brings up, though, I think, um, there's also, though, the ableist notion of um, good art comes from mad, from suffering or from disabled people suffering. So what is your response then in juxtaposition to that as well as the, you know, self-care, self-care crowd? What's, what's where, yeah. Yeah, not only did good art supposedly come from suffering, um, but that the best artists are uh, pushing themselves constantly, right? So there's two, I think, um, good art coming from suffering is sort of a mental, uh, an idea of mentally what we're supposed to be going through as artists, this sort of anguish and, uh, and sort of mental instability, possibly putting ourselves uh, emotionally in a place that's very damaging and then on top of that uh, pushing our bodies and and struggling in a way that um, that pushes our bodies to the limit in ways that uh, impact uh, disabled artists more than they would impact uh, artists without disabilities um, or able-bodied artists, however you define that. Um, especially as a performance artist, I see performance art um, the better the art in theory, but like the more somebody is um, really having art that takes a toll on their body, right? Like they're, they're struggling, they're, they're bleeding, they're sweating, they're um, holding up massive weights or putting themselves through uh, trials and tribulations that, um, that sort of, quote, normal bodies would have a difficult time uh, withstanding. So uh, disabled artists, Obviously, we're coming from a place where maybe we can't withstand or aren't able to do uh, some of those things at all to begin with. So what does that mean about me as an artist? Am I a failure as an artist before I even begin? What are some ways that you build this resistance into your practice? Not only the like making of art, but also the performance of your work. Like, What are some of those ways in which resistance is integral or what are some of the ways that resistance is brought in on like the grounding effort um oh that's a good question um i think i try to build my art to be accessible on many different levels for the audience um and one of the most basic levels is that people um can understand what they see like on a on a really basic level. Um, so with Crash Tag, for instance, people see me in a very vulnerable place 
even when I'm just flying, even when I'm sleeping in the gallery, what they're seeing is something that they absolutely can't deny um, is impactful or vulnerable or or beautiful, however um, you might define that. And so right away, people say, okay, maybe this is good art or maybe this is something worth looking at. Um, and at the same time, I recognize that what's happening is not productive in ways that I've been led to believe uh, productivity should act. And so there's a question right away at the beginning, right? I don't necessarily have answers. I don't necessarily have um, a big statement that I'm trying to make with each work. I'm hoping that those statements build and that um, if you're following my practice, or if you're following disability arts, if you're following people with the same ideas, um, that it starts to build, that your idea of this resistance really starts to build. But for one, I just want to start really quietly and say, this is me resisting, you're witnessing me resisting, and it's valuable. You can see, at least on one little level, that it's valuable. Are there any times, and this might be a little bit in the vulnerable question, so we can move on if you don't want to answer it. But are there any times that you've had to, um, like, surveil your own thoughts and your own practices that maybe you are um, judging yourself in a capitalist or a productive way? Like, are there times in which, even with the best of intentions, you still see yourself falling into a capitalist notion of productivity? Oh, absolutely, all the time, all the time. Because as much as I sort of feel like I'm, I'm looking through uh, the world with a critical lens. I also recognize that that all we can do as people is look at the world through the lens that has been given to us by society. Right? I'm looking at the world through a lens of someone that is critical of uh, what my abilities are, and that is. You know, everything that I'm criticizing is a part of the lens that I'm viewing culture through. So um, when I perform Crash Head, when I perform any of these works that are meant to be uh, a, a way for me to resist productivity or, or resist uh, capitalism, all these things, I still have the impulse to perform and to be a good body. And every time I make a new performance, I think, oh, this is very thoughtful and it's very um intellectual and uh, it's very smart and then I do the work and I'm like oh my god it's very physical first of all I forget that it's physical until I make the work until I do the work and then I find myself trying to like because I recognize that it's physical I'm like okay well, let's lean into the physicality and let's figure out how to make this work uh, given that it's physical and I'm constantly fighting against that urge uh, to perform sort of capital P with quotes around it perform. Um, so we talked a lot about how your work is influenced by anti-capitalism. I was hoping that you could expand upon how anti-capitalism works in tangent with other anti-capitalist um, politics, much like a crypt politic, a queer politic, and a fat politic. Sure. Um, I think as an intellectual, I have a grounding in uh, queer theory and, and uh, disability theory and fat theory as well. Um, so, so a lot of my um, a lot of my language and a lot of um, my politics comes straight out of very uh, theoretical 
all those theories are by nature anti-capitalist and uh, anti-corporate and anti-neoliberalist. Um, I mean, maybe this is a bit of a blunt uh, weapon, but I think that intellectualism and academia in general are very anti-capitalist and that it's very difficult to be an academic or an intellectual um, and still toe the line of, um, of a capitalist uh, society, which is, I think, why uh, intellectualism is so dangerous uh, to capitalism. Uh, I'm not sure how to talk about those things specifically and how they intersect, um, except to say that, um, that as I was talking about before about cogs in the machine, um, disabled people, queer people, fat people, we don't fit uh, the, the molds of the cogs that are needed to make the machine run anytime um, that we trouble the machine in any way, uh, it's running less efficiently. And so uh, capitalism is constantly trying to smooth out the edges and uh, anybody on the margins just, just doesn't fit and either you uh, become molded to fit and you start um, living a life that uh, tries to shoehorn your body into that machine, or you find yourself on the outside of it. Yeah. Um, and speaking about, like, the cogs of capitalism, um, it seems they have been gummed up a little bit recently um, by the, you know, current pandemic that we are collectively living in. Um, how has... How has the pandemic and sort of what's happening in the world um, impacted your art process and what you're creating and doing with yourself now and, in, in, you know, these times, these weird times that we find ourselves in? Yeah. Um, I think, like we talked about earlier uh, in the interview, because um, my brain, because my mental processes have been affected, that has had one of the biggest impacts on my artistic process. Um, and that's, uh, that's been really difficult for me because I rely on my brain to do the bulk of the work of my practice. Um, I think I'm impacted in the same way a lot of artists are both inside and outside of disability arts, which is that there are fewer opportunities for me, just because everyone has slowed down and had to reassess what it means to program, what it means to uh, to exhibit art. So there are a few small opportunities that have come up that are like performances that happen virtually or performances that happen off-site uh, and all these little ways that people are trying to make do, but it does feel in a lot of ways uh, currently like making do. Um, and I want to make do, but I also don't want to have to make do. I want to make. Um, and I want to continue making. And I don't want for us to equate, especially as disabled artists, I don't want us to equate the way people are cobbling together provisional exhibitions with the way that we should be working as uh, disabled artists. Like, oh, this is easier for us. Like, we can stay home or we can stay in bed and they can, you know, we can, we can program virtually through Zoom. I don't want that to be the default. Like, it feels like second best and I don't want the way we work to be considered 
sort of equated with that sort of second best way of programming. So then I'll go back to a word that's come up a lot in this conversation, resistance. How, how do you resist that notion that this work would be second best? Um, that's a good question. Um, I have been saying yes to opportunities as they arrive because opportunities are opportunities, and so that doesn't feel much like resistance, but I think the ways in which I do engage um, I continue, I guess I'm refusing to make work that compromises the way that I make work. And so if I'm offered an opportunity to program uh, off-site or online uh, or any sort of virtual way of programming, um, I insist on continuing to do what it is that I do. So I'm doing a performance um, that involves me um, basically kind of ignoring the audience uh, while I do what it is that I do, and I'm refusing to mediate that in a way that makes it easier for people to digest because of the fact that it's mediated a little bit. Um, like, I just, I can't allow the art world to claw back the ground that I've gained as a disabled artist in, in some of those resistance forms in those ways of refusing productivity. Um, so I just am staking my ground. I'm staking it out and, uh, and digging in. Amazing. And then in an earlier conversation that you and I have had, you spoke about a project that is related to your dreams and sleeping. Is that still something that you're working on? I am. So um, a little uh, publishing company called Noxious Sector Press just put in a book, which is my 10-year journal of dreams. Um, and I've been making work about my dreams for the past couple of years. And uh, I plan to continue making work about my dreams into the foreseeable future. Um, one of those projects, um, I mean, I... I make a lot of work about dreaming, about beds, about sleeping, and um, they, they never, they weren't tied together in any conceptual way when I first started making them, but I think um, through the dream work, I'm trying to, to tie them together a little bit more. Um, I feel like this work is very selfish and self-indulgent, but I never use those words um, in ways that are less than... Uh, absolutely positive things. I think as artists we should be self-indulgent and we should be selfish and we should be making work that is absolutely uh, interesting and fascinating to ourselves, that we should be um, making work that's relevant to ourselves and our communities. So I'm indulging myself, especially through the pandemic, in doing work um, that's uh, interesting primarily to me. And I think what I've learned through my practice over the past couple of decades is that if it's something that uh, is compelling to me that I make well, it will be compelling to other people. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I think the idea that being selfish and self-indulgent is a bad thing is a really flawed notion um, because I think that when we are creating 
work, whether that's in our jobs or in our families or in our communities, and it's like rooted in serving ourselves, like that can overflow into a service to our communities and also really remind people that they can also be selfish and self-indulgent in a really positive way. And yeah, I, I think that's a really good point that when you create work that you want, like that's going to have value yeah, inherently. Yeah, and I think that um, it's another mode of resistance to not constantly be saying, like, how is this work um, contributing to society? How is this work uh, selfless? And, and what am I giving to the world? And, and how am I uh, being productive for this machine that we keep uh, talking about, this capitalist or neoliberal machine that I'm meant to be a part of? Like, what if this is for me? Uh, what if I am talking to people that are important to me? What if I'm talking to people that are also resisting? Um, what if we uh, stop looking at ourselves as uh, people that need to contribute and, and start looking at ourselves as people that um, that need to uh, that that need to be there for each other and that need to be there for ourselves and uh, and that self-care doesn't necessarily have anything to do with being productive for anyone else besides ourselves. I was going to ask you what advice you would have for um, emerging artists who find themselves in uh, similar, who, who, who find themselves, who are also find themselves, you know, in that place of, you know, people who are just out of school or things like that are coming from academic institutions going into the art world who are coming up against all these things that you're speaking about. So I kind of feel like you just answered it for me uh, with that. So, I mean, I like to tell when young artists ask me about my practice and about how to be, um, how to make work that is, uh, a little bit more open-ended or, or work that is resistant um, but without knowing what the answers are. Like none of us have answers. I don't have answers. That's what I tell them. I don't have answers. I don't know the way we should live. I don't know how to resist. I think um, I think people should be making art that asks questions, not that makes statements. I think all the best art is by artists who go out into the world and say, I have a question and I'm curious to know the answer, and I'm going to try to find out the answer, and I hope that you're curious enough to come with me on this journey. Yeah. Um, and then kind of on a similar vein, but, like, when you look at the Canadian art sector, what is your dream for it to evolve into moving forward? Like, in your wildest dreams, what does the Canadian art sector look like? What does it feel like? How does it operate? Wow. I mean, right off the bat, in my wildest dreams, um, Canadian art institutions are a lot more diverse. Um, and, and that's diverse in all respects um, in terms of who they employ and the kind of art that they exhibit. Um, the kind of artists that are invited to have a seat at the table. Um, I, I mean, that's institutions within galleries and funding agencies and schools. 
um, from from the institutions that are uh, creating artists and that are telling people what art is um, and are making art visible and making it viable. Um, I think all the whole uh, sector needs some massive shaking up, and I would love to see it start uh, with diversity. Um, beyond that, I my dream is for artists to be able to um, make a living doing what they do, they're doing, or at least to be able to make a life doing what they're doing. And uh, even if not all of us can make a living in the arts, we should all be able to uh, have a life that centers our practices uh, while we do the other things that we need to do to make a living. So, Cindy, one thing that we talked a lot about in this conversation um, is the resistance of productivity uh, of bodies, especially uh, the resistance that disabled bodies need to take against the cogs in the wheel of productivity. Um, how would you say that disabled bodies um, are different and or similar to the concept of a failing body? Um, yeah, so I curated an exhibition, uh, a performance evening a couple of years ago called Earthly Tents in Edmonton. And it was from a quote uh, from, I think, uh, Corinthians um, about uh, these earthly tents, in other words, our um, bodies uh, being shrugged off in order to make our way to heaven. Um, I liked, uh, I sort of liked the idea of bodies as tents, um, and I was trying to, do, uh, I was trying to think of ways um, that I could start as a disabled artist talking about bodies' failure um, that wasn't equated with disabled, um, that there's ways that bodies can fail on able-bodied people that don't necessarily um, put them in the realm of the disabled. So I've seen a lot of people taking on the world the word disabled um, because they have a body that's starting to break down. And I guess I push against that a little bit at the same time as I don't want to gatekeep um, the world of disability. Um, but basically I was asked to curate an exhibition for a dance company um, and as a disabled artist I wanted to make work um, about disability. Uh, and at the same time I kept thinking about who it is that I wanted to involve, and all of these people were suggested to me. We should work with this dancer. She's getting a little bit older, and her body is falling apart. And I bristled a bit at the idea that I would have to invite all these people in that, would, that wanted to be a part of this discussion um, because of the fact that, like, oh, I've been dancing so long that I've developed these foot problems or I've developed these knee problems. Like, that's great, but that's not the conversation I want to have. I want to talk um, about people with disability. So I'm going to take um, the idea of disability and split it off from the idea of a failing body and talk about um, what it means when people who are disabled um, want to talk about their bodies as failing so that we can allow ourselves to have people with, um, with bodies that are considered othered and with bodies that are considered um, less able that don't want to talk about their bodies as failing. Um, 
And so I involved um, people with all different kinds of uh, physical and mental disabilities in this project that did want to say, like, this is where my body is failing and, um, and this is what I want to say about it. Um, and it was really, I think the project was really beautiful because of the fact that, um, that it, was, uh, it was disabled people talking about their vulnerabilities and talking about the ways in which um, they didn't have to try and pretend to have good bodies for these able-bodied audiences. They didn't have to prove themselves as, um, as worthy of being uh, watched, and they didn't have to prove themselves as, like, I'm good enough to perform for you and look at me transcending my disability for you. Um, they said, look at me in my body and what it's capable of, and I'm going to tell you exactly um, what, I, what I'm upset about or um, what, what isn't working for me, and, and I want to talk to you about the things that maybe I'm afraid of and that you're definitely afraid of about my body. Um, and it was a space for people to be really vulnerable in front of the people that are probably the most scary to be vulnerable in front of, which is not just uh, able-bodied audiences, but dance audiences. <laughs> uh, so when you spoke about earthly tents, you spoke about this idea of bodies as tents. And for me, I was kind of thinking about what else happens when our bodies are kind of completely... Um, at rest and when we're sleeping, when when we are sleeping, and then what happens that is productive when we're sleeping is not only are we resting, but we're dreaming, and dreams and sleep has come up a lot in your work. Um, could you talk about some of the other uh, projects, exhibitions, curations, performances that you've done relating to dreams and sleep? Yeah. Um, so I think where the dream work started for me is that I've been keeping this journal of dreams for the past 10 years, um, and I basically write down the dreams, and then I never look back at them. It's, so it's a journal that just um, goes forward and generally doesn't go backwards. Um, I didn't think of it as an art project when I started keeping track of my dreams, although I thought that there might be something generative about it. Uh, and after about seven or eight years, um, I decided to read back on some of the words, and as I read them, um, I realized that I didn't recognize them at first. So I would read a dream, I would experience it as though for the very first time, as though it was somebody else's dream, as though I'd never read it before. And then slowly it would wash over me the idea that um, this is something... Uh, that I know very well, and, and I know well enough that it might in fact be a memory of something that really happened. I can smell the smells and see the sights and, and hear all the um, all the audio of the dream, and I really, um, it was really effective, really, really uh, made an impression on me. And so at the same time, I was going through a series of, uh, I was remembering a trauma that happened as a child. I mean, I remember the, the story leading up to the trauma, and I didn't remember the trauma itself. So um, I was a child, and I was actually abducted. So in this, uh, in this trauma that happened to me, um, basically, 
I'm three years old riding a big wheel tricycle, and these two older boys start taunting me. Um, it was it was a very powerful event that I remember very clearly, and I didn't realize until my mom recounted the story to me that the memory actually stopped there. And her retelling of the story starts um, much later than that. She remembers uh, the point when she realized that I was missing, that she was looking for me, couldn't find me. Um, eventually, found someone who thought they saw someone um, who saw these boys leading me um, in a certain direction, and she went looking for me, and I don't know who all was involved in finding me, but eventually they found me. And her, the important part of the story for her is that um, is that the parents said, oh, our boys would never do this, but in fact, um, they did. So um, to her, it was a cautionary tale about parents uh, not believing their children could do any harm. But for me, I realized, like, oh, there's a whole chunk of my life that's missing that, um, that I never realized that I grew up thinking that I could not be the kind of person that ever had that kind of trauma happen to them. Uh, and realizing that it had it suddenly gave me a whole new, um, whole new conception of how my brain works. And as someone uh, with uh, disabilities that touch the brain, I realized um, that I had a lot more thinking to do about my brain and how my brain works. And so I decided to take this catalog of dreams and see if I could use it as a way to try and pull up memories from the past that had long been forgotten by, by pulling these dreams out to the surface, um, pulling out memories and, and trying uh, to revisit traumas and see how I might be affected, how I might be changed, how my world might be changed by bringing these things back that have uh, been long buried. Wow. Um, beautiful, and thank you so much for sharing your personal part of your life. Um, are you working on dream work right now, or is it kind of like an, an evolving practice? It is. I, I don't know. I just made this sort of arbitrary decision that because I had a journal uh, that spanned 10 years that I was going to spend the next 10 years making dream work. Um, and for me, it felt like a way of removing some of the pressure of uh, of art making. If I if I had sort of an outline of what I was going to be working on, then my brain wouldn't have to spend too much time worrying about where the next project was going to come from, or worrying about um, like how my work fits together and what's going to be next, and and how people are going to conceptualize my practice as. Uh, having these through lines, I just know I'm going to make this work about dreams, um, and I'm not going to worry too much about how it fits together. I'm just going to focus on this, and and really, it's about how can I be changed, and how can the world around me change by um, by revisiting these things that I don't know that seem to have no value to the rest of the world that seem to have no value even in my world um you know we think of dreams as really frivolous things that might you know signify something but um in fact it seems like a good way for me to continue my practice of resisting productivity and and being anti-capitalist by focusing on something that uh, some people would think of as, as so frivolous so um i think 
the projects that I'm doing these days. Um, so we really capitalize on that continued desire to resist productivity by uh, looking at a dream that I had, asking people who were in the dream to help recreate it with me, and then having these really quiet moments that um, an audience is welcome to participate in, but maybe they don't have a way in in the same way that that one person does. Um, a lot of my performances, I build at least one or two levels for people to engage with that um, that not everybody can, that's, that's maybe not for them. And that's, I think, one of the ways that um, my queer politic and my uh, disability politic and my fat politic uh, comes into work is that I speak to people um, using a language that maybe the rest of the audience doesn't necessarily have. Sometimes I'm speaking specifically to queer people or specifically to fat people or specifically to disabled people and we're sharing a moment, we're sharing an experience that the rest of the world doesn't have. And the whole project doesn't have to be about everybody. It doesn't have to be for everybody. So I had someone approach me once and say, um, I get it that this work is really queer, for example. This work is really queer, but don't you think you should make it accessible to me in some ways? I'm not queer, so I don't understand this work in life. Honey, this work is not for you. <laughs> this work just isn't for you. Um, and I think a lot of my dream work is going to be like that. Even, and it's not specifically for queer people or just like maybe it's just for one person. Right? Maybe this work is just for one person very quietly. Um, and I think that in itself is uh, a form of resistance. So, Denny, we're coming to the end of this conversation, and again, a massive thank you for joining us today. I know that the mm -hmm. folks who are listening to this episode or who are going to be reading the transcript of this episode are going to garner a lot of knowledge and a lot of uh, questions that they can ask themselves about their practice. Um, so, for anyone who is listening who wants to get in touch with you, get in touch with their work, how can we find you? How can we get in touch with you and following your work and your practice? Yeah, um, my social media handle, Instagram and Twitter, are uh, Cindy B, that's C-I-N-D-E-E-B-E-E, -E -E -E. uh, on my Facebook, where I spend a lot of my time these days, is, uh, is Love Cindy Baker, and uh, my website is cindy-baker.ca. And the last question of all of our Crip Times episodes um, is, what has been bringing you joy recently? Um, water. Water has been bringing me joy because I've spent a lot of the summer in water. I've, uh, I've been in Ontario for the summer, which is uh, not where I usually find myself as a prairie-based artist, um, and I have access to a swimming pool that I use almost every day, and I've been swimming in lakes almost every day, and um, I can't even begin to tell you how much joy I get being in. Crip Times is presented as a part of the Wheels on the Ground podcast network. 
This podcast is produced by us and supported by Tangled Art Plus Disability and Bodies in Translation. If you enjoyed this interview, we release new episodes every Monday wherever good podcasts can be found.